Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev. I've joked before on this show that one of my ambitions is to one day not have an obituary written about me by historian Eric Loomis, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Rhode Island and author of A History of America in Ten Strikes. Why? It's because Dr. Loomis specializes in speaking hard, unvarnished truths about important historic figures, not just eulogizing them, but assessing their true character and balanced impact. But today, he's here to talk about his most recent obituary, and it's one that's a little bit more complicated. What is the real legacy and meaning of the life and work of former Soviet leader Gorbachev? Dr. Loomis, welcome to Great Ideas. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and we were just starting to commit the cardinal sin of radio and podcasting when you're not recording, when you're not broadcasting live and you're recording for later broadcast. We started to do the pod before the pod. We we got together here and we started saying, this is, this is a weird one, the outpouring of reaction since the death of former Soviet and final Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. And when I say outpouring, what I mean is it was noted in kind of high prestige publications. It was kind of an item in the New York Times and the New Yorker and Politico magazine, and you see reflections, but they're sort of relegated to historical footnote. And I was saying to you that it strikes me as weird for those of us of a certain age. This is a person who was one of the two most powerful human beings on the planet for six years, and who is going to be the focus of significant historical writing and analysis for centuries to come. And yet he's sort of an invisible figure to most Americans these days. And his passing is sort of a below the fold item. What do you make of that? Why is that? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. I mean, one is Americans are notoriously ignorant about the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, most Americans couldn't name a single foreign leader. Um, and uh, even, you know, they could probably name Putin right now, um, which is also part of the story I hear, I think. But, um, you know, it, it's it's a long time ago. You know, I mean, it's it's 30 years ago or more now. And Gorbachev has been in irrelevancy since then on the international stage, um, a kind of famed senior figure, but completely repudiated in Russian politics, um, having zero support and, in fact, vilified um, by many Russians, as well as uh, as well as for that matter, as many of those who are in the former Soviet Union, the, you know, the Lithuanians, the Cossacks and et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's a piece of it as well, uh, that he just hasn't been on the scene in a meaningful way in a very long time. Um, I think it is an interesting moment that this is happening in that, um, you know, our relations with Russia uh, at this particular moment in time are arguably worse than they ever were during the Cold War themselves, uh, maybe with the the possible exception of of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but even there, it wasn't it wasn't really personal, right? This is a personal um, hatred at this moment between the the Russians and the Americans, and so um, you know it, it's interesting that at this moment where Russia is playing a, a, a bigger role in American news media than it has since the the the, the fall of the Soviet Union in ninety one, 
that uh, on an everyday level, the Gorbachev death is not really, you know, it's not really making a, a big splash. It's really like us political people uh, broadly construed who are talking about it. Well, and I think that the thing that stood out, as you probably intended, about your obituary of Gorbachev was your first line, which is, despite what Americans want to believe about the man whom they credit with doing much to end the Cold War, Mikhail Gorbachev is probably best described as the greatest failure of a leader in Russian history. And that that assessment is at odds with, to the extent that there is sort of a popular imagination in America about what he is and, or was and what he stood for, that, that is at odds with, with that image. So I want to land on why you make that assessment and maybe unpack it a little bit. But before we do, why don't we sort of follow the more traditional string of, of obituary and, and history that you provide in your article here and talk a little bit about where he came from and how that informed the part of his career that we all focus on. So what were Gorbachev's roots and how how is that significant to the kind of leader he became? Sure. So, you know, Gorbachev, he he grows up, he, you know, kind of on the, the border between uh, Russia and the Ukraine in the 30s, right, which is the, the period of the great collectivization effort. Um, of course, you know, that has enormous disastrous, genocide, almost genocidal consequences in the Ukraine, um, as Stalin, um, you know, basically is willing to have all these peasants die in order to push his industrialization. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so he's growing up in the middle of this. Um, his family uh, were major supporters of collectivization. Uh, his grandparents, uh, grandfathers were both uh, revolutionaries, um, both of whom uh, actually were caught up in the purges, although they both uh, survived. Um, and uh, so, he, you know, he sort of comes out of that that moment of uh, of Stalin's consolidation of power and then the war, right, which he is a, a young boy uh, in, you know, finishes when he's 14. So he's done not active in the war, although his father uh, was thought to be killed and, and only ended up wounded and, and sort of came back. But significantly after they thought he was he was dead. You know, so Gorbachev, you know, comes out of this this sort of background, pretty typical, really, of, of a Soviet uh, kid at this moment. Um, but he's pretty talented. Um, he and his father uh, kind of first come to attention um, because, you know, there's this moment after the war uh, where in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe as well, uh, there's a kind of, you know, sort of a, um, a deification is the word I was looking for of of, of workers who, you know, are willing to go the extra mile and, you know, engage in enormous amounts of work for the state. Um, if you've ever seen, um, if anybody, listeners have ever seen Andre Veda's uh, film, uh, Man of Marble, um, which is about this um, in, in Poland after the war, it's, it's an excellent sort of introduction to what this means. But, um, you know, basically he and his father go into this contest to harvest this like incredible amount of grain. They succeed, they give medals, they get medals for service to the state. Um, his father receives the Order of Lenin. So he, you know, so it's a sort of a rising family in late Stalinist uh, Soviet Union. He goes on to college. Um, goes into the law, which is actually not a particularly valued profession in the Soviet Union, which probably says a lot about Stalinism. And he sort of just rises through the Communist Party, right? He's really just kind of a of a guy for the most part. Um, as we go through uh, as we go through Khrushchev's uh, in, in, into the Brezhnev era, 
Gorbachev is seen as sort of a mild reform kind of a figure. Um, he's not, no one really thinking, oh, this is a future, you know, this is a future leader of the, of the nation. Um, he, he, he follows the Khrushchev era reforms, but what, what, what's really important here, and we can go into the, into the, 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 the weeds, is that what Gorbachev is, is a master infighting politician. Mm. This is really a very definitive part of his life. He's very good at sucking up to older leaders. Um, I compare him in the obituary to Lyndon Johnson this way, um, who was also a master of this, right? Um, you know, he could be a better sycophant to older leadership than others. And he slowly rises in as a local level. He is a, you know, internally a reformer. He doesn't really support the crushing of the Prague Spring in 1968, but he's going to come out and do that. He's going to say he supports it because he is a careerist. And he begins to rise and rise and rise um, in, until, you know, finally in the 1980s, he becomes this kind of, um, you know, leader of a sorts of a younger generation as the ancient Stalinists uh, are finally dying off and are forced to, to give up power to a different generation. You hear in that narrative some interesting themes that then come back during his relatively brief but highly consequential stint as the leader of the Soviet Union. One is that he was of a different generation than the leaders who preceded him, who had been informed in many cases by growing up right after the Russian Revolution or who had served in the military in World War II. His upbringing was informed by the period of the terror in the Soviet Union, the Stalinist repression and violence and uh, executions of thousands of people per day. And one of the things that emerges from the New Yorker profile that was just done by Masha Gessen is that he never, Mikhail Gorbachev never let go of what he discovered about that time period and about Stalin's uh, uh, violence and repression. When he later became Soviet leader, he was actually horrified and, and somewhat obsessed in the period after he stepped down as leader by that time period and trying to expose the historic truth of it. And yet, despite knowing more than just about anyone about the, the, the horrors of that time period, he seemed very dedicated to the Soviet enterprise, to the idea of the USSR. So that's one theme that, and a seeming contradiction that comes up. The other is the one that you raised that he does have and video viewers can see over my left shoulder, the collected works of Robert Caro on Lyndon Johnson. He does have a very Lyndon Johnson-esque approach to attaching himself to more senior figures, kind of rising himself kind of in their shadow at their feet. And then upon assuming power, he very quickly turns on them and doesn't become sort of an avatar of of their programs, but rather sets out on a very different reformist direction. So feel free to pick up on, on either of those threads, but I, I find both of them very interesting about him. Yeah, I mean, we look, we can get in in, in a bit to why I, I do really, in the end, call Gorbachev a failure. But look, I mean, that doesn't mean he's not a a good man in some ways. I mean, I, 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 and I, I, you know, failure is not necessarily a pejorative in this case. I mean, I think that when we're thinking about Gorbachev today, 
and in our conversations, I think about um, deceased uh, leaders that we have had over here over the last year or year and a half, um, that you know, one of the themes that comes up is the kind of of, of sort of misty nostalgia memory that people mm. want to have for for these leaders, and you know, Gorbachev, and then and from an from this case, right, because Gorbachev ends the Cold War, because you know his his leadership is what is the final death knell for the Soviet Union and to his everlasting credit does not really use that much violence in uh, suppressing uh the dissolution of the country which he could have done and I think is is much much to his credit um uh, you know we kind of want in, in America we see him as this celebrated figure but it actually reflects us like we're celebrating him because we won, so to speak. Right. Um, and, you know, we won without having to go to war. But it's not just about us. Right. It's about him. I mean, I think that that's the problem is we're sort of forgetting who this person was. And he was a committed communist. Absolutely. All the way. He is a committed communist. He believes in state socialism. He believes in the party. He believes that communists should be leading the Soviet Union. And he believes in the empire that the Soviet Union was, including this, you know, not just being a Russia, but being this larger, uh, this larger empire being run out of Moscow. All of these things are absolutely core to his belief, even if, and he's hardly the only one here, he openly rejects the purges and the violence of the Stalin era. Right. And so he is this, you know, we have to recognize this is a complicated individual with a complicated legacy. And his legacy is not just from an American perspective. It has to be seen from a Russian perspective, from a Lithuanian perspective as well, or from an Eastern European perspective or, or from many perspectives. It's not about uh, the, the mm. death of, a, of any leading politician is not about us and how we feel about him or her. It's about their actual legacy. And I think that we're really missing a lot of Gorbachev's legacy. It is strange though, that despite, it's a contradiction to me because despite the amount he knew about just how the, the communist, the, the Leninist vision had been perverted by Stalin and, and had turned into a nightmare, into, into a horror for his country, despite how much he knew about that, he was so dedicated to the communist enterprise and the Soviet enterprise. The other thing that I find weird that kind of goes of a piece of this is the context economically that he stepped into as he began his final rise to ultimate power, which was the total economic catastrophe that the Soviet Union was going through and, and Russia in particular was going through at that time. Serge Shaman, who uh, is a member of the New York Times editorial board, appeared on the Daily, the New York Times podcast this morning to talk a little bit about that, that when he started reporting on Russia from Moscow in 1980, he describes it, the situation as there was nothing in the stores. I mean, Americans now are complaining about elevated prices, you know, and, and some supply chain kinks. But he's saying there, there was literally nothing on store shelves. You couldn't get food. The entire country was addicted to vodka. As a matter of fact, Boris Yeltsin later said that they never would have survived as a country, the 1980s, without two things, vodka and spam, because the country would have starved. And 
you, there were no cars on the road because Russia somehow managed to make worse cars than the United States, barely functioning automobiles, trains didn't run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The country was falling apart. And yet, despite all of this evidence that the, the repressions of, of the communist Russia uh, set up under Stalin and the economic catastrophe that his country people were living through, despite all of that, while he was trying to liberalize and reform, he still ultimately thought that the Soviet system and the communist system were the ways to go. I, I sort of find that baffling. Well, I was in Cuba right before the pandemic and, you know, I was talking to Cubans and, 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 you know, it was interesting because, you know, I mean, Cuba is a weird place in, in a number of ways. Um, and, and of course, like any sort of socialist or, or totalitarian state is. And, and, but, you know, the sense I really got was that most people would admit that the economic system was not working. Right. I mean, it was it was hard to hard to argue that the economic system of Cuba works. Um, you know, food is not that, you know, unless you have some connection with with the U.S., like food is, is limited and a similar situation. But yet the kind of overall ideals of the state are still held on to by a whole lot of people. You know, some of that is is being, you know, this is the world you grew up in. Right. This is, you know, you have dealt with you know, for lack of a better term, propaganda about a system in, in the ways in which Americans are completely beholden to capitalist propaganda. Um, you know, so you grow up in this system. It's the only thing that you can imagine, um, you know, especially with Marxism, there are, you know, the, the words are, are nice, right? That the, the idea of equality is a nice thing. The idea that we can, you know, bring up the, the, the poor uh, is, is something that is, you know, that, that, that has a lot of appeal to a lot of people and, and continues to today. So I think that it's, you know, if you grow up in any kind of a system, I think that there is a tendency to, you know, and I think we see this with, with the Russians and then in, the, in a kind of a post-Russia thing, as long as there's hope, I think there is a deep desire to make the system work because it's not just about a sterile economic system it's about an identity and an ideology and it's very mm -hmm. difficult to just break from that and i think that when you do see that totally fail in the end not here in the 80s but in the 90s that's when you really see not just a you know kind of like a rejection of the soviet union but a complete turn in those politics right so that you know, for instance, you know, Russian immigrant communities to the U.S. are among the most right-wing communities in the United States right now. Even though most of these people were old enough to have grown up under socialism, it's not until the total break that the ideological shift is able to happen, and then it happens. You know, and then you're talking like a 180 sort of a thing. And I think that's kind of the, the, the era in which you know, kind of what Gorbachev's leading to, even though he ends up learning more about just how broken the system is than anybody else, he desperately wants to fix it because he believes in the theories of state socialism and he believes in the Soviet empire. And he, it's hard to him for him to imagine some other kind of system. So he, he comes in in 1985 and within weeks, he announces a series of reforms. What, what was that, just to remind our listeners who may not have lived through that time? Yeah, I mean, you know, 
Gorbachev takes over in 85 and it becomes very clear to him that the system is really broken. And, you know, he is going to have to engage in some some real serious last ditch last ditch changes to save the state. Right. And this 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 gets placed into two categories of terms that you may know uh, or listeners may know. One is perestroika. Um, which was a sort of like some of the, the recent um, attempts to slightly open a free market in Cuba, right? It's to bring in some limited private ownership, some limited market principles into the economy um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to revitalize the economy because the, the fully centralized uh, state planning that Stalin had brought in in the five-year plans weren't working, right? Um, this, it should be said, is not a transition to some sort of Western European style market socialism, right? It, this is still central planning. It's just opening up a few uh, um, attempt or a few spaces to bring in a little bit of competition in order to try to make the economy work and make it more efficient. And it, it, you know, it doesn't work at all. The second piece of this was Glasnost. Right, which was the attempt to bring in some actual criticism of the Soviet state, to have a little more free speech, have a little bit more freedom of the press, to decriminalize um, critiques or criticisms of the Soviet state. And so, you know, he releases uh, Andrei Sakharov from prison, the famed dissenter. Um, you have a little bit more um, ability to criticize the the country and. You know, what this ends up doing as well is, you know, it, it, it leads to criticism from sort of the left and from the right. It leads to people who think Gorbachev is a huge sellout and a traitor to the state, as these hardliners are going to do, to be pretty open and criticizing him. And then it's going to lead to those who believe that the free market needs to have a much larger place in the Soviet economy. And this is a group led by Moscow Mayor Boris Yeltsin to be pretty open and criticizing Gorbachev too, whereas no one, you know, it's not as if there's this sort of upswelling of support for Gorbachev's policies. Either you think he's going too far or you think he's not going far enough. So, you know, these were attempts to, to open up the Soviet economy and the Soviet state a little bit. But once you turn on that spigot, it's hard to turn it back off or to keep it under control, um, which is, you know, again, to compare it to Cuba is what contemporary Cuban leadership is trying to do. Uh, not with all that much success. Just to make a, a quick cultural reference for people who, um, you know, again, didn't live through this necessarily. In Star Wars, in the movie Star Wars, Princess Leia says to the, you know, representative of the evil empire that the tighter the, the empire grips, the more systems will slip through their fingers. And it seems like what happened here in the real world was sort of the opposite of that. Gorbachev tried to loosen some of the grip, as you say, in 1987, he released all Soviet political prisoners, several hundred of them at the time. In 1989, it released its grip on some of the satellite states uh, and, and nations, and they began to overthrow their Soviet uh, governments, Poland, German Democratic Republic, Czechoslovakia, Romania, etc. And it seemed like the theory of it made some sense which was, let's allow people to express dissent. Let's give them a little bit of freedom. Let's bring in some market reforms that will improve, improve people's day-to-day -day experience a little bit by making people's lives a little bit better, 
giving them a little bit more freedom and allowing them to blow off a little bit more steam in nonviolent political ways will reduce some of the built up pressure and negativity in the system will 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 make people feel better off and the whole enterprise will function better it just didn't work that well it, it as a matter of fact there was a violent reaction from some of the old line hard line types that surrounded him and that he had been kind of brought in to sort of continue their program as a younger man and he he kind of quickly turned against sort of the old way of of doing things just a quick aside, you point out in your article, in your obituary of Gorbachev, that a great representation of the kind of reaction that this got is found in the TV series, The Americans. I just want to editorialize for a second. Folks, if you haven't watched The Americans, what are you doing with your life? It is either the best or the second best, if you prefer The Wire, thing ever put on television. Immediately go out and binge watch The Americans. I, I can't say this any more strongly. Would you like to comment on that aspect of this before we go back to actual history? Yeah, I, I would agree that the Americans is the second greatest show in television history, um, just behind the wire, uh, and that that says a lot given how much I love Deadwood, um, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, and and as a historian, I love Deadwood too, as, as a historian who, who knows a lot about the late nineteenth century. Um, but the Americans is just so incredibly powerful and devastating, and oh. you know it, it's 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 a truly amazing show, and and I think it's the best it's the best piece of it. Are it's right there with movies like um uh like the spy who came in from the spy who came in from the cold or the manchurian candidate as the best cultural productions ever made in the west about the cold war and i mm. i again i would i would recommend it with uh with a strong emphasis i'd also put the movie 13 days up there but i mm. i will say i will say matthew reese who is a welshman playing a russian pretending to be an american and whose american accent is better than mine he did not deserve the Emmy he got. He deserved a Nobel Prize. Okay, back to the show. Um, so there is this violent reaction internally, and indeed there is there is an attempt to essentially have a coup and put Gorbachev out of office. Why don't we touch briefly on this period? And then I really do want to get to the, the big question overhanging all of this, which is, was Gorbachev ultimately a failure? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, I think that the... The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 is, you know, is is probably the single most important event in uh, late 20th century history, at least of the last two decades of the 20th century. Gorbachev absolutely could have brought in the military to try to suppress it. Soviets had a long history of that. Hungary in 56, Czechoslovakia in uh, 68, um, you know, the suppression of the Solidarity Movement in Poland in the 80s. Um, but he chooses not to do that. And I think he chooses not to do that for a couple of reasons. One is that he is really sort of disgusted with the rest of socialist leadership around the world. Uh, he sees Eastern Europe and Cuba both uh, as ruled by incompetents who are relying on an increasingly weak Soviet Union to uh, prop their up their economies. Um, they are very, you know, Eric Honecker especially is absolutely immune to any sort of reform. Um, and so um, while Gorbachev could have sent the military in that night in 89, um, A, there's a lot of reason to believe that maybe it wouldn't have actually been that successful. A lot of people would have died, but there was 
you know, such an overwhelming desire to get rid of these governments by then um, that um, it's hard to see an actual repression uh, being successful given the, the struggles of the Soviet Union itself. So that's the context here, right? And the Soviet, you know, so you're talking about, you know, a year and a half, two years later, um, there's a lot of disgust among that hardline elite over what's happened to their empire. It seems to be crumbling on the periphery of the Soviet Union itself, in Kazakhstan and in the Baltics especially. Um, there are serious breakaway movements. They don't think Gorbachev is oppressing them enough, although there was violence against uh, Lithuanians, um, uh, state violence against them, and, and a bunch of people are killed. Um, and so, uh, you know, seeing a combination of his reforms failing and the end of the empire, potentially the end of the Soviet Union, the hardliners strike. Uh, Gorbachev is off on vacation. They take over. Uh, it's a coup, but the coup fails um, because it's just simply too late. Uh, there's this, you know, massive uprising in Moscow. This is what makes Boris Yeltsin famous. Um, and the hardliners are forced to give up. Gorbachev, in response to this, basically ends the Soviet Union and seeks power. All right, let's get. Let's get to the main headline here. I think the case has been made in lots of places, and I don't want to belabor it too much here, that Gorbachev deserves the reputation that he enjoyed for many years, although, like I said at the top, now he's in many circles kind of forgotten. But he enjoyed the reputation that went with the Nobel Prize that he won for what he did accomplish. We were in a situation of the Cold War, a history of repression by Soviet uh, leadership against countries that tried to break away. Um, and you even note in your article that um, he did not do the kinds of uh, military interventions that we'd seen in Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968. And that for the most part, he brought an end to the Soviet empire bloodlessly. Now, there's been a little bit of what I'd call quibbling about that from Masha Gessen and others pointing out that, you know, in 1989, the authorities crushed pro-independence protests in Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia. They killed 21 people. I'm not minimizing that there was some violence, but in comparison to the ending of occupations elsewhere, the ending of empires, the dissolution of empires elsewhere, it was remarkably bloodless. And I think the argument that people are trying to implicitly make is when you look at the context of the situation he stepped into with the total economic catastrophe that Russia and much of the Iron Curtain countries were living through in the 1980s, the fact that the political system was barely working and was only being held together through violence and extreme repression. And that he was trying to do what, I mean, would seem to be the least bad among a slate of terrible options to try to gradually introduce reforms and reduce repression and introduce freedom. It seemed like he went down the best possible path he could have, it just didn't land in a good place. So I guess it's sort of a two-part question. 
Do you agree with that, that that's that's sort of what he was presented with and that he took what seems to be the best possible course? And in light of that, is it fair to call him a failure? Well, again, you know, as I said, failure in this case is not per se a pejorative. Look, you have to I think you have to evaluate people on their own terms. Mikhail Gorbachev wanted to save the Soviet Union. He wanted to save save state socialism. And he wanted to maintain um, a communist empire that was the sec, you know, that was with the United States as an equal superpower. In all of these, uh, by all of these metrics, he failed. But as you point out, the options were terrible, right? I mean that that the you know that the, the economy was collapsing. You know, a year after he takes over is Chernobyl, um, which you know really we haven't talked about that yet, but really opens up to Gorbachev just how corrupt the state is, and he mm. they're not even giving him honest uh, honest uh, 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 reports about just what the heck uh, is happening, right? Um, and so you know his options are in fact pretty limited. Um, and so I, I, I think that, it, you know, does he deserve that Nobel Prize? Yes, he sure does. Right? It is a truly remarkable move that this ended with an extremely small amount of violence. Um, and if you could compare it to uh, uh, transitions in governments uh, elsewhere, you know, um, it, it's almost unprecedented, right? especially given the scale uh, of what the decline of the Soviet Union really meant on a global on a global um, uh, from a global aspect. I just point out that we had almost as much violence in the capital insurrection in 2021 as we had in the the numbers that I just rattled off. So, I mean, you know, it it just it bears noting. Oh, oh, no, it not only bears noting. I mean, it's one of the most remarkable things in 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 recent in recent global history. You know, Mm. and and I think that that's that's to Gorbachev's credit. He could have made different choices. So, again, from an American perspective, yes. Right. He is a heroic figure from a Russian perspective. He is loathed, despised. He runs for president, you know, because you have a, you know, you, you know, in the aftermath, you have a democratic system that develops at least for a little while before, you know, before Putin, you know, rigs the whole thing. So, you know, he runs for president in 1996. This is five years after he has voluntarily, in the end, left power. He gets 0.5% of the vote in Russia. This means that one out of every 200 Russians wanted him back. Okay, That is a repudiation of leadership that is also basically unprecedented in recent global history. Now, let me ask this. Is it a repudiation of leadership? I mean, yes, obviously, on its face, it clearly is. Or is it, in equal part, a repudiation of public opinion? Because as a matter of history, you're the expert, not I. We revere people who leave power voluntarily. That's one of the major reasons that we revere George Washington in the mold of the Roman general Cincinnatus, who could have become an emperor and didn't. And Gorbachev not only accomplished a relatively bloodless dissolution of an empire, but he then left power voluntarily, maybe not entirely of his own accord because it was a fait accompli, but he did do so. He did do so. And I just wonder, 
as we compare to the situation we're in politically today, and I, I, I work hard on this show to not bring in too much current American politics and my own particular political views, but I will say that it's somewhat confounding to me, and I'm a Democrat, that Joe Biden's approval rating is now about 44, 45%. That's a lot higher than you know 0.5%. But this is someone whose achievements are truly historic. They truly rival some of the greatest bursts of productivity we've seen in any presidential administrations in the last century. And he's a relatively anodyne personal figure as well. It's not like Donald Trump where he's going out and making fun of people with physical handicaps and um, you know picking on people because of their race or gender. And so you have someone who's relatively mild, who's trying his darndest and succeeding at doing good things, who has pretty low approval ratings. And you have Mikhail Gorbachev, who leads a bloodless dissolution of an empire and could have taken the course that they took in about the same time frame in China in Tiananmen Square, rolling in the tanks, repression, violence, killing. He didn't do that. And yet he's reviled, as you say, in Russia. What does that say? about us, about Russians, and about the way the public reacts and and the relative popularity of a figure like Vladimir Putin? Well, I, I think that, you know, look, in, in terms, I, I don't think it should be a political, <laughs> uh, be even called a political statement that, you know, elections in the United States should should happen fairly. And when the party in power loses, that that party voluntarily gives up power. Um, that's why America works, right? To the extent that America has worked in its history, which, you know, depending on your perspective, you know, if you are uh, Black, you can pretty much argue it hasn't worked. But to the extent that it has worked, that's the reason, because people give up power, as you point out, Washington, and then John Adams uh, deserves a ton of credit for that, too, because that was a loss to a, a different political party at a moment where the belief that political parties uh, would doom a nation was, was very strong among those leagues. Mm. So well, but Washington and Adams deserve a ton of credit for this. And until very recently, the idea that if you were to lose power, you would not give that up voluntarily, right? Or lose an election that you would try to hold on and fix the election and everything else. That's a very recent thing in American history, except to note at local politics and state level politics in the American South during the Jim Crow era which is also a telling moment about what how that's been sort of turned into national Republican politics is basically the politics of Alabama in 1900. Okay, that's a side note to note, a side uh, issue to note that that we, when we say we, we're talking about Americans. There's not a whole lot of evidence that this is something that's valued in Russians. Mm. Russia has a very limited history with democracy. Um, the only real de democratic period it's ever had was the immediate post-1991 period, which was a mess, a horrible time for Russia when life expectancy plummets, when a few plutocrats are able to take over the entire economy, and when the United States is spiking the football in their face rather than sort of helping them transition into um, something that's going to be like a social democracy or something of this nature, Americans are just seeing, you know, opportunity for investment, um, to evangelize, to engage in uh, experiments in extremist forms of capitalism. 
Um, and so that's, and then Putin comes along and basically reprovides stability. Um, and there's, you know, there's Putin has technical elections, but you know, he almost doesn't have to fix the game because people want him to stay in power in Russia. So I, I think that it's, you know, we, we need to step back, I think, and say, you know, it's not necessarily a universal human uh, element that they want peaceful transitions of power. A lot of people want a strong man. And I think we're seeing that in the United States now as well, that the opportunity is, is opened up for that, even if it's a, a clown like Donald Trump. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people do want that. And so that, I just don't think there's a lot of evidence in Russia that there is a desire uh, for that, that, that that kind of move by Gorbachev may be seen just as a move of weakness, not as a move of principle. In the final analysis, how do you think history is going to judge, assess Mikhail Gorbachev and his legacy and what he did when we're talking 50, 100 years out from now? Well, it's always hard to say because you don't know what's coming. I mean, you know, what 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 does what does this war look like with the Ukraine? How does that end? Uh, what is a post a post war Russia? What does a post Putin Russia look like? And so all of those things will uh, frame the ways in which historians um, uh, evaluate Gorbachev, right? Uh, because we all are we all are to an extent influenced by uh, uh, influenced by the, the the world in which we live in. So I, I don't know, but I think that, you know, I, I think that the, the, the idea of Gorbachev taking extraordinary steps um, will always be there because he did, and that those steps were, were very important in saving a lot of lives and transitioning into a, a better world. But again, it, it's worth noting that, that, you know, Gorbachev is not seen positively in, in Russia. He's not really seen positively either in most of Eastern Europe or for that matter in the um, in the former Soviet republics. Um, and so I think it's also just going to depend on where is a historian writing from? Like U.S. historians may continue to see him in a laudable light, but will Russian historians? You know, will, will Lithuanian historians, uh, will Georgian historians? I think that's, these are questions that, that are going to be defined in part by the perspective in which the historian is writing from. And, and I think will reflect the actual quite complex, uh, complex legacy of Gorbachev. I guess that's a good note to, to start to wind down on. I, I guess I'd quote from uh, William Taubman, who is the author of a biography on Gorbachev, one of the very few authorized biographies on Gorbachev. Uh, it's titled uh, Gorbachev, His Life and Times. His assessment that he wrote in Politico magazine uh, just this morning as we record this was that ultimately Gorbachev trusted too much in the Soviet people's capacity to govern themselves. He also overestimated his ability to control the communist hardliners who mounted an abortive coup against him and Boris Yeltsin who ultimately forced him out of power. So I think what I took away from that and from reading your excellent obituary is that he failed in the right directions and he failed perhaps in, in his ultimate aims, which, as you say, were to continue the communist system, to continue some type of Soviet system where these countries would be bound together under Russian leadership and to continue a basic blueprint of the economic program that had ruled the Soviet Union for so many years. But he ultimately failed in the right direction by having some faith in things that weren't there and trying to achieve freedoms and reforms that were ultimately good for people and the right direction to go. Well, Dr. Eric Loomis, thank you so much for this 
fascinating insight and uh, analysis of this very important historic figure. Hey, you bet. I'm always happy to be on here.